This is the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know through wisdom, God pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, for God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we ask for a blessing this morning that you anoint Pastor Daniel to preach a powerful sermon in which we can understand and grasp the nature of you calling people into your kingdom to serve you and to bring you glory. So may we be blessed, remove any hindrances from our minds, any roadblocks that we have in seeing truly who you are and how good you are to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It is an awesome privilege to get to preach the word of God, and I am so grateful to get to do it here with my church family this morning. So we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 16. We're going to actually cover the, kind of survey the whole chapter and then pull some, some three primary points out of it. But we're going to start the reading this morning, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. And it goes like this, Paul went on to Derby and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was Greek. The brothers and the sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, the proclamation of your word. And Lord, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be encouraged and convicted as we sit out in a beautiful day. It's easy for us to, to get comfortable. It's easy for us to, to drift but Lord, this is your holy word and we want to, to sit before it in, in seriousness and in joy as a family to be instructed. And so God, we ask you to do that this morning by the power of your spirit. We pray this in your name, amen. So when I first came back to the Lord after wandering pretty far, I cannot tell you how on fire I was, how passionate I was. I used to sit outside of the coffee shop, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, don't do that, but drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and just drinking in the word of God. And the Lord worked out the, the, the cigarette smoking and all that stuff, but there was this burning passion to do so. And I wanted everyone to share in my spiritual renewal. So of course, the first thing I did was I took to Facebook. And I started to post all the things that I was discovering and, and I thought that other Christians should know about in order to experience what I was experiencing. And Facebook reminds me 
of all that idealism from those early days uh, with its on this day feature, right? It provides a record for me of all those statements that I made, all those black and white pronouncements of how things should be coming from a sincere, if untempered heart. And to be honest, I still find myself longing for those days. Those days when it seemed like the solution was always simple and that the, the passion of my heart would never be quenched. And over a decade later, having grown in some maturity, hopefully, I realized that many of my statements were actually made from subtle self-aggrandizement or more, more of them, just simple ignorance. And you see, I believed that life in Christ would be an experience of unrestricted exponential growth. And that if I just followed the same formula that seemed to be working so well right now, that it would mean soon I would have a personal life and a ministry that were in a word perfect. <clears throat> and then life happened. Christian leaders and ministry partners failed and betrayed me. God allowed cancer to take the life of a little girl that I had been praying desperately for. Seasons of crippling depression laid hold of me for no apparent reason. I got married and I realized I'm not quite as selfless and holy as I assumed myself to be. <laughs> and hardest of all in those moments, in my times of greatest need, it felt as though the heavens that once smiled upon me had turned cold and that God wasn't hearing my prayers. So I share this as a reminder to myself and to you all that we will always have a tendency to idealize certain seasons of our life and our walk with the Lord. We will look back and think, if things could just be like that again, then I would be happy then I would be holy. But in reality, that season is probably not quite like we envisioned it. It's probably not as perfect as we thought. And we have the tendency to do the same thing with the Bible. We look back to Acts chapter two and we think if only, if only we as a church could be like that, then I would be happy, then I would be holy. But the entire book of Acts especially chapters 12 and on, remind us of our first point this morning, if you're taking notes. And the first point this morning is church life. Christian life is very messy. It's very messy. Verse one begins, Paul went on to Derby and Lystra. Paul went on. From where? With who? Not, not Barnabas. <laughs> Pastor Patrick last week, I'm sure, did a great job of covering the story of the split between Paul and Barnabas. But can you imagine, just for a minute, can you imagine the heartbreak and the discouragement of that? Paul and Barnabas had been set apart by the Holy Spirit of God and commissioned by the church. They had evangelized together and planted churches together and performed miracles together and endured persecution together. And they had now broken this divinely appointed partnership over a disagreement about support staff. Can you imagine how frustrating and confounding that must have been to Paul and Barnabas 
much less those who had been converted and discipled by the two of them. What did the church in Antioch, who had laid hands on them and commissioned them, think? Paul and Barnabas did what? But, but we fasted and we prayed. We heard from the Holy Spirit. Did, did we really hear from the Holy Spirit? Did we miss something here? And now Paul is entering this region of Derby and Lystra where it says there was a, a disciple named Timothy. The brothers and the sisters of Lystra spoke highly of him. And, beginning, and the beginning of verse three says, Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. So Paul, on, his heels of his, on the heels of his relational failure with Barnabas, now wants to reach into the pot of another faith community and take with him a young man who is clearly a blessing to the whole body of believers around Lystra. And this surfaces a question, and it's a question that is not clearly answered in the text. Is Paul's ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles that much more important than the ministry that Timothy was doing to the church in that tri-city area of Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. Well, it's easy for us to look back and make a, make a judgment about that and say, yeah, of course it was more important. But imagine, if you will, a well-known, faithful megachurch pastor from, from Boise, right? We'll call him Megachurch Mike coming across Southeast Idaho on a mission trip. And he's making stops in various locations to evangelize the lost and to encourage the churches. Imagine he were to stop here in the Idaho Falls Ammon Rigby Metroplex area. <laughs> and he hears that Jeff Kennedy is a faithful, effective, passionate minister of the word. Now imagine Mega Church Mike wants to take Jeff with him for the rest of his trip potentially taking him back to Boise, never to return to serve the congregation here at Christ Community Church. The ministry of this megachurch reaches tens of thousands. It's laying the foundation for God-glorifying churches to be planted all over the Northwest in the Intermountain West region. And he thinks that Jeff Kennedy is the key, the next key component to this mission. Does the reach of megachurch mega Mike's ministry trump the ministry that Jeff is doing here at CCC? Both are faithful men pursuing the calling of God. Both are concerned with the gospel going forth in Southeast Idaho. Both love the church, including the congregation here at CCC. What is the right thing to do in that moment? It is messy and unclear. And what if megachurch Mike had just split from his primary ministry partner. Would that change the algorithm and the decision-making? And if Jeff were to leave, there would be more mess. There would be sadness. There might be excitement for some, but I'm just kidding. Confusion. There would be jealousy, concern. And just so you know, I'm not trying to prepare you guys for anything. I'm just, this is, this is truly just an example. But all of that consternation, all of that consternation that would be caused by such a situation here is likely what was happening to the believers around Lystra. Wait, Paul wants to take Timothy with him? Why? Because he ran off Barnabas and John Mark and now he's lonely? Paul wants Timothy to go with him? Wait, why doesn't he want me to go with him? Or why doesn't he want my son to go with him? 
Doesn't Paul have the backing of the church in Antioch and Jerusalem? Why does he need to take our best resources? And as much as we idealize the life of the church from the book of Acts, we cannot forget that those thousands who were being added to their numbers were sinful, broken, idolatrous. They were loaded down with their own cultural and personal baggage from a life living outside the grace of God. And it makes things messy. Most of the epistles, as well as much of the book of Acts, are a record of instructions to messy churches on how to live differently in light of the gospel. And although we rejoice that Christ Jesus, by his perfect life and his atoning work on the cross, has justified sinners, he's justified us, and that he is ensured one day we will be glorified and, and relieved of the mess that sin cause in its, causes in a temporal and eternal sense, we have to remain aware that our sanctification is messy. The church is a gathering of saints whose conformity into the image of Christ is still in process. And in the same way, the spread of the kingdom of God across the face of the earth is messy because it's going forward through people who are still in the process of sanctification. And then that messiness is compounded by another fact, a life lived in service to a king, a king who the rulers and the authorities of this earth rage against is a guaranteed life of struggle and mess, of continuing to have to gather our bearings and reform our ranks in the midst of the fog of war. And a life lived as a living sacrifice to the Lord will require that we regularly watch things that we love, even good things, consumed in the fire of the altar. And it's confusing and it's messy. Timothy was a gift from God to his mother and father, but to the community of saints there in Lystra. And that gift was taken and it was redistributed across the region. And it's not explicitly clear that it's for any other reason than that Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. Which leads us to our second point. Comfort is not our calling. Despite what everything in our culture is trying to convince us of, comfort is not our calling. And this is demonstrated in the passage in three ways. First, circumcision. Second, <laughs> confrontation. And third, captivity. First, circumcision. The second half of verse three says, so Paul took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places since they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, there's some irony here. In chapter 15, it's shown that Paul has come from the council of Jerusalem where it was decided that no, in fact, you do not have to observe the ordinances in the law in order to be a member of the family of God. You need not be circumcised to be a worker of the kingdom. And this is Paul who speaks so aggressively against circumcision in a later letter to this very region that his language would be borderline inappropriate in polite company. 
And Paul is literally carrying a message with him that plainly indicates it is Timothy's right to decline circumcision. So why? Why would Paul subject Timothy to this? Furthermore, why would Timothy allow himself to be subjected to this? It's clear from Genesis 34 that adult circumcision is a painful process and a debilitating recovery. So it's unlikely that Timothy just wanted to kind of see what this whole circumcision thing was about. I think that the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter nine gives us the controlling interpretation of why Paul would press Timothy to do this and why Timothy would submit to it. In chapter nine, verses 20 through 22, it says this, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law to win those under the law to those without the law, like one without law, though I am not without God's law, but I am under the law of Christ to win those without the law to the weak. I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. And in this instance, it wasn't the Greeks who were struggling with the concept of liberty from the law, liberty from, from Torah observance. Genuine worship for the Greeks had included all types of spiritual and, phys and physical immorality and indulgence. They couldn't care less what you did with your body as long as you were getting in on the worship of the gods. But for the Jews, genuine worship had involved strict Torah observance. And they cared, including this distinct physical sign of circumcision, they cared tremendously about the specific ways in which Yahweh desired to be worshiped. And where the Jerusalem council had ordered restrictions, some measure of restriction for the Greeks saying, hey, you need to abstain from your old forms of worship. It had ordered liberty to the Jews and to the Greeks to find salvation, not in Torah observance, but through faith in the finished work of Jesus. And Paul makes it clear that both the strangled bloody meat that it was offered to idols is nothing and that the Torah observant uh, uh, circumcision is nothing. But he does point out it's the attitude of the heart towards God first and flowing out from that, the attitude towards the weaker brother that matters. So Timothy's circumcision is not a glaring contradiction in the text. It's not him trying to keep the law of Moses. It's his willingness. It's a willingness to come to harm. It's a willingness to come to harm in order to keep the law of Christ, which is the law of love. In this instance, those who the text called the, the, the Jews in, in those places, they were the weaker brother. So Timothy embraced the discomfort of circumcision for no other reason than to remove a stumbling block from, for them. It's fascinating. Verse four says, as they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. Timothy underwent circumcision so that he might gain access to the circumcised in order to deliver to them the, the good news that their hope 
was no longer wrapped up in circumcision or obedience to the law that prescribed it. And it's easy with this one to get focused on the, the, the physical sacrifice of circumcision. It's, it is, it's an easy joke. <laughs> but that isn't all that Timothy sacrificed in order to reach the lost. He sacrificed the comfort of being a well-respected member of a community. He sacrificed the comfort and the familiarity of his home and family. He sacrificed the comfort of his vocation and business opportunities. He sacrificed the comfort of not having to face persecution and imprisonment. And the community had to sacrifice the presence and the ministry of Timothy. All, all, so that others might know the love of God in Christ. And the second way that this passage demonstrates that comfort is not our calling is in confrontation. Verses six through 15 of chapter 16 recounts a story where God forbids Paul to go into Asia, whatever that looked like. <laughs> he forbids Paul to go into Asia and he leads him to Macedonia through a vision. And upon arriving in Philippi, a city in Macedonia, they connect with a God-fearing Gentile woman named Lydia who is reg generally regarded as the first European convert. This is the, the movement of the gospel into Europe. And after her conversion, she invites him to stay with her and use her home as, as a base of operations for the evangelism of the city. And so they've been out evangelizing. And one day they're on their way to corporate prayer. Side note, Paul the apostle regularly attended corporate prayer. Just going to throw that out there. So they're on their way to prayer. <laughs> and this demon-possessed slave girl begins to follow them. And for days, she follows them, shouting out, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. And frequently, this passage is translated that Paul got annoyed with her. But it can also be translated that he was grieved so whether Paul was heartbroken for this demonically afflicted little girl who was being exploited by her masters for financial gain, or he was just done with the ruckus that she was, she was causing, he turns and he says to her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. Now we as believers... We praise God that the demons tremble at the name of Jesus and that in his name, people can be freed from demonic oppression and torment. We see this act right here for what it is, the kingdom of God destroying the kingdom of darkness, the mercy of God being visited upon one of his image bearers who is in bondage. And we would expect that others would be with us in that celebration. Others would rejoice at the liberation of, a, of an enslaved soul. But that is not the case here. Let's look what happens to them in verses 19 through 24. It says, when her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them to the to, into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. And the crowd joined in the attack against them and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. 
And after they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he puts them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. So rather than rejoicing, rejoicing that there is a living God, a living God who has dominion over every spiritual power and authority, a living God that has set free a child who has been in the crushing grip of a demon and turning their hearts in faith to God, they are enraged. They are enraged that they have lost their ability to exploit their slave for financial gain to build wealth off the spiritual bondage of another human being. And so they drag Paul and Silas into the public square to seek retribution for what the kingdom of God, what the power of God had done to their demonic status quo. They appeal to the pagan justice system claiming that, that Paul and Silas are threatening the peace of the empire. They malign the gospel, calling it customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice rather than recognizing it as the power of God unto salvation. And then they rally the crowd to enact mob justice against them. And this is what the confrontation with the kingdoms of the world will look like. Proclaim, I promise you, proclaim and live out the, the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit long enough and you will confront the spiritual strongholds of culture and they will come after you to destroy you, claiming that what they are doing is in the best interest of the empire. And so what happens? These businessmen do get redressed for, for, for what happened to them. They beat Paul and Silas and they throw them in prison which is the third way in which this passage shows us that we are not called to comfort. And that's captivity. Captivity. And this needs little, I need some water. This needs little explanation. For those of us who have been to jail or to prison, we can testify that it is an awful dehumanizing place. In many ways, jails and prisons are the emblem of all that is wrong with humanity. And it was much worse then. Paul and Silas were thrown in there also for nothing more than demonstrating and proclaiming truth that confronted prevailing culture. And Paul was a Roman citizen. This didn't happen to Roman citizens, but it happened to them. And it's currently happening to, close to, uh, to Christians in close to 50 countries around the world. Brothers and sisters, why? Why should we expect anything different than that? Because we live in a particular time where religious toleration happens to be on the agenda of some countries? because we live in a country where the founders enshrined religious freedom as a right in the constitution, although we are so grateful for that, those are not biblical reasons to not expect violent opposition to and imprisonment for the message of the gospel. Anytime you march into the public arena with a message as exclusive as ours, there is one king There is one kingdom. 
Anytime you publicly declare Jesus alone is Lord, so you ought not worship idols. You ought not have your brother's wife. You ought not treat the traditions of men as the commands of God. You ought not exploit suffering for gain. Anytime you publicly wrestle with the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil and darkness, you should expect conflict, opposition, silencing, imprisonment, and death. Or you should expect conversions. God uses, this is our third point, God uses the mess and the discomfort, including the opposition, the mess and the discomfort to expand the kingdom of God. God uses it. After Paul and Silas are imprisoned, they're having themselves a little worship session in the stocks. And suddenly there's this earthquake and all of the chains fall off the prisoners. There's gotta be some symbolism there. Uh, all the prisoners and then the doors of the prison open and the jailer who's been instructed specifically to guard these guys extra carefully sees that this has happened and he gets ready to kill himself either out of the shame or he's more afraid of the consequences that are gonna come uh, for losing all the prisoners. But Paul calls out to him and he comforts him. And he says, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And in verse 29, it says, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household with you. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. And he took them in the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. Right away, he and all of his family were baptized. He brought them into his house. He set a meal before them and he rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Think about this. The next day, Paul and Silas were going to be released because of their citizenship, which means that God allowed them to be demonically annoyed, publicly maligned, physically beaten, and unlawfully imprisoned so that this jailer, this instrument of the kingdoms of the world that was unjustly incarcerating two emissaries of the true king of kings, so that this jailer and his family might come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture that reinforces to us our rights, especially our right to comfort. We, live, we have the right to never be offended. We have the right to never be sick or inconvenienced. We have the, the right to never be disagreed with. You hear that? I have the right, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we have the right to never want. Credit card companies make their billions by selling to the American people, not a particular product, but the concept that you have the right to the same comfortable life that you see everybody in our commercials living. And we will sell that to you for 18% interest and cash back on all of your purchases. 
The culture is fighting a war for our souls and it wants us to be given over to the obsession for self-preservation and self-indulgence. But we follow a savior who did the opposite. Christ stepped down out of the perfect order and comfort of heaven into the sorrow and the mess of humanity. We follow a Messiah that laid down his right to be served by all of the hosts of heaven and all of the nations of the earth in order to serve, even washing the feet of disciples who would deny and abandon and betray him. We pledge allegiance to a king whose coronation occurred through the most egregious mess of human justice that has ever happened the crucifixion of the only, the condemnation and crucifixion of the only innocent man who has ever walked the face of the earth. And his invitation to us is to pick up our cross and follow him, to do as he did, sacrificing our comforts and our rights and our lives so that others up to and including our oppressors and our enemies might know the love of God in Christ. And though this is frightening on its face because the cross only looks like terror to the one picking it up, we may be surprised by the outcome. Above any other rights we may lay down, above the right to liberty, to the pursuit of happiness and self-determination, even to the right of life itself, in Christ, we have been given a right which can never be laid down or revoked or canceled. We have been given the right to be called the children of God. And with that right comes glory far exceeding any earthly benefits or comforts. And although comfort is not our calling, we will find that the God of all comfort is with us in our sacrifice. And he will use our sacrifice to comfort others. And although the Christian life is messy, we will discover that our God, the God of order, the one, will bring forth his kingdom from the chaos that we perceive, just as he brought forth light from darkness and life from death. Look what it says in verse five of this chapter. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in number. The kingdom of God expanded despite being opposed by the religious elites in Jerusalem, despite the insidious threat of Ananias and Sapphira, despite the Greek widows being left out of the food distribution, despite Stephen being martyred, despite Saul's campaign of persecution, despite the Samaritans confusing sorcery for the power of God, despite the confusion around the adoption of the Gentiles, despite James' death and Peter's imprisonment, despite the political insecurity caused by Herod's death, despite demonic opposition by Elimer the sorcerer, despite the growth and the persecution from both the Jews and the Greeks, despite confusion over Torah observance and pagan worship practices, despite Paul and Barnabas splitting, despite the transition of Timothy and despite beatings and false imprisonment, despite all of the mess, despite all of the discomfort, despite all of it, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. The kingdom of God expanded. And that 
brothers and sisters, is how powerful the gospel of Christ is. It takes mess and it creates beauty. It takes death and it creates life. It takes imprisonment and it brings freedom. And it takes the reign of darkness and it makes it the kingdom of God. But here's the question for us this morning. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. We thank you that there's no other good news like this good news. There's no other system and there's no other kingdom that can bring salvation to the Jews and to the Greeks, that can bring liberty to the captive. There's no, there's no other world, there's no other government that can take evil, what, what was meant for evil and turn it for good. And Lord, we entrust to you the, the struggles and discomforts of our lives and we know that we have been blessed abundantly. We have been so blessed and we pray, Lord, for a continued blessing of, of, of religious tolerance we, 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 we pray that we might live in peace. We pray that the gospel might go forward in peace. But Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. We look to Jesus, the one who laid down his right, laid down his comfort, laid down the order of all things so that he might become like sinful humanity and from the, the, the very worst thing that has ever happened, bring salvation. God, we ask that we be a church that clings to this, no matter what comes, that we cling to this, that despite it all, the kingdom of God goes forth. We love you. We praise you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Please stand.